Well then, trusting uh, God for his help and guidance, let's uh, turn to the second portion that we read there from the Bible in the Gospel according to Mark and chapter 6. And reading again at verse 20, where we read that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. So Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. As well as that, when he heard him, he did many things, and heard him gladly. Now this is the uh, passage of scripture that uh, introduces us uh, to this man, King Herod. And uh, although he's the most prominent of all the heralds in the Bible, he's not really the best known, and uh, neither is he the one that we normally think of when we do think of a herald. The fact is that, believe it or not, there are six different heralds referred to in the New Testament, but uh, two of them are more to the fore than the other four. The first is the one that we know best, the father of this one, who was called Herod the Great. Uh, he was a ruthless man, a vain man, and a man who had a reputation, even in the Roman world, of extraordinary cruelty. He died a terrible death. Not long after, he ordered the massacre of the under twos in Bethlehem in an attempt to get rid of the Messiah, whom he believed to have been born. Of course, he didn't catch Christ in that massacre because Christ had fled to Egypt or his parents had taken him to Egypt when he was still a very young child. Shortly afterwards, like I said, he died a terrible death. Now, he wasn't beyond killing members of his own family, but at his death, his territory was split among three of his sons. And the territory of Galilee in the north was given to this man, who is usually referred to as Herod Antipas. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us an awful lot about him, but this is one of these occasions where secular historians can uh, fill in the blanks for us and tell us perhaps a little more about him. And uh, they tell us that he had a reputation for his deviousness, that he was very shrewd, very, very cunning. Interestingly, uh, the Lord refers to him as a fox. Uh, go and tell that fox, he says, and that's the particular aspect of his character that Christ refers to. Again, he was renowned for his sensuality. He lived for pleasure. And of course, when you combine these things with power and the opportunities that power brings, well, you've got a toxic mix and Herod used these things as much as he could. But the strange fact here is that he's deeply troubled 
and he's dipped with trouble because he's heard of the ministry of a man called Jesus of Nazareth, who is, of course, uh, preaching the word of God, and not just preaching the word of God, but also performing signs and wonders. And when Herod hears about that, he, he wants to know more about him, who he actually is, and the feedback he gets gives him com conflicting opinions. Some people think he is the prophet, in other words, that he is actually the Messiah, the promised Messiah that the Jews were waiting for. Others believe that he is one of the Old Testament's raised prophets, raised from the dead. The Jews had, some of them anyway, had the idea that Jeremiah would return to prophesy, although that is nowhere said in the scriptures. Others believed it was Elijah. There was far more to that because, of course, famously, Elijah never saw death. He was one of only two people raised up to heaven while still alive. And, of course, the Old Testament closed with a prophecy that Elijah would return. So there was some substance to the belief that he was Elijah. But the opinion that most intrigued and frightened Herod was the opinion that this was no less than John the Baptist raised again from the dead. And the more he thought about this, the more convinced Herod became in his mind that that's actually what it was. And the reason for that is because his conscience was troubling him. Now sometimes it's hard to think of a person who lives like this as having a conscience. We know ourselves that if you persistently sin against your conscience, you're in danger of quashing the light that your conscience gives. I referred a few weeks back to the danger of your conscience being seared like a hot iron. Just as what happens to your skin when you brand it, you can't feel anything there. Well, there's a danger of your conscience becoming like that. If you just keep violating it, without seeking the peace that God gives the conscience, which only comes through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, received by faith. But Herod, obviously, is not beyond the reach of his conscience bothering him. And the reason he does have a bothering or a troubled conscience is because he was himself responsible for the death of John the Baptist. It's fair to say that he didn't wield the axe that cut its head off, but it's also fair to say that he gave the command to the executioner who wielded the sword to cut his head off. And of course that makes him primarily responsible for the death of John the Baptist. And that troubles him. And here it increasingly troubles him. And I believe it troubled him until the day of his death. I don't believe he ever got over the sight of John the Baptist's head being handed to him on a plate. It wasn't something that he wished to see, but he saw it, and I doubt if he passed any more nights on this side of eternity without seeing that head before him. In fact, I doubt if he still has many moments in a lost eternity when he doesn't see the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Like Lady Macbeth, who was so troubled at her part in the killing of Duncan, she couldn't wash away the spot. She couldn't get rid of it. And I'll come back to it.
to that litter. She was going out of her mind, and I've no doubt that progressively Herod was too. Now it all began with a, a terrible sin on his own part. Now all sins are terrible, but some are more terrible than others. And sometimes there are sins that just set us on a course of action from which it's very difficult to turn us back. That's why we need to be extremely careful when decisions like that come into our lives, to be to beware that we don't take steps that may turn out to be fatal in connection with our soul's destiny. Uh, a sin like that came into his life. Herod was originally married to quite a powerful woman herself. She was the daughter of an Arabian emir. Very powerful man, and she obviously would be a powerful woman. But there was a sudden turn of events that shocked everyone, and that happened when Herod was on a special visit to Rome, a state visit. And there he stayed with his brother Philip and his wife Herodias. Herod becomes attracted to his brother's wife, and she, for her own reasons, becomes attracted to him. It's quite obvious that whatever attracted him to her, it wasn't the same that attracted her to him. The way she can more or less prostitute her own daughter in front of her husband means that that didn't seem to matter too much for her. It was some kind of advancement of some kind, some step up on the ladder of power that made her want to transfer her marriage allegiance from Philip uh, to his brother Herod. So the result is that Herod comes back from Rome with his brother's wife. Now that of course was a shock and an outrage <laughs> to the people. But the fact of the matter is that there was no one there really to challenge Herod. There was no one to confront him about it because he had surrounded himself with flatterers, which is what people in power very often do. His leading religious advisors were from a group called the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees in the New Testament are effectively the liberal theologians of their day. And you know what I mean by that. They sit loose by the Bible, really. They like to dress in robes and take part in state occasions and they like to look grand and sound rather grand and pompous but they don't really believe the Bible that's in their hands. Now that's the way the Sadducees were. They were just simply liberal theologians and they were far more interested in being chaplains in Herod's court than in actually telling the truth, a truth that might even save his own soul. So there was going to be no rebuke from the Sadducees. Now the Pharisees would be different. They would have disapproved of it, but they lacked the courage themselves to say so, uh, for other reasons that I'll come to in a minute. But the fact of the matter is that sad to say, if, if you're choosing a life that is clearly going far wrong and not the life that God calls you to live, a life of disobedience to the Ten Commandments, you'll sometimes find that you can live that kind of life and indulge it and that there's many a professing Christian or even many a so-called minister of the gospel who won't cross you or tell you that such a thing is wrong. And that, of course, can pacify your conscience to some extent. I mean, if you, if you have a professing Christian saying, oh, well, 
that's okay if you if you're on drugs or drink or something, or if you're living in this kind of relationship, which was actually an incestuous relationship, they say, well, that's all right, providing it's loving, or same-sex marriages, or things of that kind. Um, they'll say, well, that's okay. Uh, love sanctifies everything. And like I say, you'll find ministers who'll tell you that. But of course, that was about to change in Herod's experience, and although he didn't like it, that was a good thing. I mean, God saw fit to send him someone who would tell him the truth. And that's a wonderful thing. We would think, in a sense, that when a, a person has gone this far, that God wouldn't bother. That God would say, listen, you've gone so far, no opportunities, no lifeline, you've had your time, you've had your opportunities. But the Spirit of God strives with the most extraordinary people. He strives with ourselves. He strives with you. Uh, there's no reason why he should strive with you other than um, it is his choice to strive with you. It is his kindness to strive. And he strove with Herod himself. He sent him John the Baptist. Now I don't need to say too much about John because in another context we looked at him recently. In fact, on two or three occasions. You'll remember how God oversaw his birth and upbringing in a special way, trained in the wilderness, largely in solitude. At 30 years of age, he comes out as a, as a preacher of the word and as a different kind of preacher of the word. He preached repentance and he preached real radical repentance, calling the people not just to believe but to change, calling people to become godly in their life and in their habits calling families to become godly. It was even said of him in the Old Testament that once he would come, he would turn the hearts of fathers back to their children and the hearts of children back to their fathers. It's an interesting thing that it's the hearts of fathers to children and children to fathers. I mean, families are breaking up and fragmenting all over the place. And of course, in, in America, there are some powerful a black Christian people, both men and women, who are identifying the problem amongst the black communities as not being things like racism or economic disadvantage, but family breakdown. That black fathers are absent, but so are white fathers absent. And families are disintegrating very often because of the absence of fathers and the inability of men to take responsibility for a wife and for a child and to live in a relationship of faithfulness and commitment inside that, that family. And so it's, it's no accident that with the ministry of John the Baptist there was family healing. Order came, and people were turning from a sinful life and wanting to do what God was calling them to do and living the life that God was calling them to live. Now John reproved Herod. He reproved Herod. Now, of course, I, I made the point when I was preaching about John the Baptist that it was one of the distinguishing things about him that he just uh, didn't deal in generalities. He was extremely specific when he preached the gospel. He told people how they were to live and what exactly the law of God required of them. In other words, he wouldn't say things like, 
oh well it's a terrible day we're living in or uh, this is a dark day and isn't it an awful declension he would actually say what was wrong and it didn't really matter um, what the consequences were he didn't avoid the S word which is sin of course you can sit sad to say in some churches in the land especially in the western world and they actually don't really mention sin at all some of them will actually say to you I've heard this said that people now find the word sin so offensive that it's best not to use it in the pulpit and you think really? that's extraordinary the, there's another similar error which involves using the sin word all the time as a substitute for defining it I mean if you, if you talk about sin and mention it 300 times in a sermon it doesn't mean you preached on sin it just means you used the word that's all people are right to say well what is it can you describe it for me what is it that I do that's sinful and it's interesting how John's ministry was blessed because he actually dealt with things like that. The people said, what must we do? He said, if you've got two tunics, give one to somebody who has none. If you've got food, share it with someone who doesn't. The tax collector said, what should we do? And he said, don't collect any more than what is appointed for you to collect because they were notorious at fleecing, for fleecing the people. The soldier said, what shall we do? He said, don't intimidate anyone, which Roman soldiers did all the time. Don't accuse people falsely, which they did all the time, and be content with your wages, which they never were. That's what repentance means. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for you? Which commandment is it that you most violate? Is it, I mean, some of the God before God himself? Worshipping him falsely? Taking his name in vain? Do you sometimes say OMG? Even filling in the blanks? Everyone says that. So what? Does that lighten it in the sight of God? What about the Lord's Day? Have you started washing your car? Mowing the lawn? Doing lots of other things maybe behind closed doors that you didn't used to do on the Lord's Day. You thought it was wrong to do on the Lord's Day. But now it's okay, probably, because other people do it too. Do you honour your father and mother, or do you dishonour them? Have you dishonoured them in their old age by not caring for them, as you ought to care for them? Are you disrespecting life? Are you committing adultery, fornication, having sexual relationships outside of marriage? Everyone does that. And does that mean God thinks lighter of it? Supposing everyone in the world does it, does that mean God thinks lighter of it? Do you tell lies easily? Do you covet? Lust after money? Lust after possessions? Are you jealous? Vengeful? Resentful? Bitter? Do we understand that for all these things we will appear before God and give account? We've got to understand that. We're going to appear before God and give an account for all these things. And John defined sin, not just in public, 
but he defined it in private. Luke tells us that when he met Herod, that he opened his sin out before him. That's what the Greek is actually saying in Luke chapter 3, that he opened his mouth and set his sin before him. That means that he explained to Herod exactly what he had done wrong in the sight of God. Gracious and forthright, as any Christian should be, as you should be, in telling a brother or a sister their sin, or telling your neighbour their sin, not always easily done. Not always easily done. And it takes great grace and wisdom to know when and how to do it. But always, always with kindness, always with charity, because you are seeking the well-being of your neighbour or your brother and sister. And to be honest, if you're not, it's best to say nothing. That will be quickly detected and it will cause nothing but war and rift and bitterness. And the only thing that enables you to do this kind of thing properly is if your heart is overflowing with love to God, a desire to be faithful to him, and a desire to save your fellow man and your fellow woman from hell and to bring them to heaven. It's not to put a notch on your post and say, well, I did this today. That's me faithful today. It's because God wants you uh, to care for your fellow man and woman and to strive with his help and with his blessing to extricate them out of a sin that is leading them to a lost eternity. So Herod told, sorry, John told Herod the truth. Now, Herod was angry, and sometimes that's the way people respond. And I suppose with people in power, people in power, that's always the way they're going to respond. But I'll tell you something. Herod might have been angry, but he wasn't half as angry as his wife was. He wasn't half as angry as his wife was. And as it turns out, she was far more devious than Herod himself. And it was largely at her prompting that Herod felt bold enough to issue the warrant for John the Baptist's arrest, and he was imprisoned, with the intention at the time to put him death. A risky move for Herod. But if it could just be done, and done quickly, maybe he could just quell the aftermath. But for some reason there was a delay. And the delay didn't please Herodias. In fact, she discovered that the more she urged Herod to get on with this, the more Herod tried to stop it. And did stop it, we're told, at the end, or in the middle of verse 20, that Herod actually protected him. Now the real reason, the real question is why? Why did Herod decide all of a sudden to protect John? Well, there's two reasons for it. The first is obviously political. He doesn't need to be afraid of the Sadducees, the liberal theologians, for the reasons I gave earlier. What do they care anyway? John's better out of the way. The Pharisees, well, for a time the Pharisees rejoiced in John the Baptist's light because that's how Christ describes it. You rejoiced in his light. They rejoiced when he appeared calling people to the word of God. But there were two problems with John the Baptist. One is that he identified Jesus as the Messiah. They didn't like that. The other is that he rebuked the Pharisees themselves for their own sin. Churchmen they were. Elders they were. 
teachers of the law of God they were. But he showed them that they themselves were not living right. That their hearts were not right with God. Especially that their hearts were full of covetousness and self-righteousness. And they used their religion as a cloak for their own moral failures. We know people like that. So it was political. But the main politics was in this that he feared the people. And like every politician, he knows that the people's opinion matters. It's not a democracy here, but still the people's opinion matters. And you see, the people, as they so often do, they know the truth. And they know that John knows the truth. And they don't respect Herod, but they respect John the Baptist. And John the Baptist may be in a prison cell, uh, and Herod may be ruling the kingdom, but the people's hearts are with John and not with Herod. They, they've tasted the word of God from John the Baptist. They've received the life-giving water of life that God gave John the Baptist. And their hearts were filled and their lives were changed and their families were changed. How could they not love John the Baptist? So he was afraid of doing anything, taking away that godly man's life. But leave the politics aside. There was another reason why Herod was reluctant to lay hold on John. And this was a reason that wasn't there at the beginning. But it appeared, it grew, it developed, and it was a religious reason. A spiritual reason. Lo and behold, in the heart of this man, Herod, the fact is that his attitude to John began to change. As he observed John... And as he listened to John from time to time, his fear of the people started to give way to a fear of John. As verse 20 tells us, Herod feared John. It would be a good thing, friends, if that had continued. And if the fear of John had become a fear of God, and if the fear of God had squashed his fear of the people, it's sad to say the fear of the people eventually triumphed because it very often does with us. You know, it, it, it's probably quite shocking to all of us to discover the extent to which it's the desire to people please that keeps us all into the kingdom of heaven. I suppose at the end of the day, people pleasing is a form of self-pleasing. I suppose it is. It's certainly a form of pride, but it's remarkable the extent to which people pleasing keeps us out of the kingdom of God. People-pleasing. People-pleasing. When these people will do nothing for us eternally, they won't even know us in the darkness of hell, and we won't know them. I, I've so often remarked, I've, re I've remarked it even amongst yourselves before, that every picture we have of hell in the Bible is a picture of isolation. You, you never find people in companies in a lost eternity. In contrast with that, you always find people in companies in heaven. There's an innumerable company in heaven. There are people rejoicing, full of gladness, and sharing fellowship at the Lord's table in glory. There's none of that in hell. Every time you catch a glimpse 
of the awful bowels of a lost eternity in hell, there's no one there but people on their own. The rich man dined and fared sumptuously every day with all his friends, but in hell there's no one even to touch his tongue with cold water to, to give him relief. Nobody. And how many things did he do in life for his friend's sake? How many things do you do in life for your friend's sake? And it keeps you from God. Well, he feared John. He started to fear John. Why did he fear John? Well, the text tells us that he feared John knowing. In other words, what we're about to be told here is just directly related to his fear. Herod feared John knowing that he was a just and a holy man. Now these two words are often found together in the Bible. <clears throat> so are the concepts they relate to justice and holiness. They often appear together. For example, Simeon, the old man who cradled the infant Christ in his arms before he was taken to glory himself, we're told that he was a just and devout man. Pretty much the same idea that's brought before us here, just and holy. But although these words just and holy sound pretty much the same, they do mean something different. The word just has to do with our relationships with people. If you like the second set of commandments, the first set of commandments, first four, have to do with our relationship to God. You'll know that. No other gods before him, worshipping him without visual aids, not taking his name in vain, and observing his sabbatic rest. The rest of the commandments, the second table of the law, are not to do with loving the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, but loving our neighbour as ourselves. And the word justice is related to that. John was just. He loved his neighbour, including Herod, even as he loved himself. That tells us that John didn't cheat, didn't steal, he didn't lie, he was courteous, even in rebuking wrong. He was respectful, he was kind, he wasn't covetous, he was faithful, he was loyal, he was considerate, he was what the old world would call a gentleman. It's just. You could depend on John. Honest man. An honourable man. If we're not known as that, as Christians, there's something way, way wrong. And whatever we might profess about being believers in Jesus Christ, if our lives are not just, the world has every right to say, what kind of profession is that? But he's not just just, he is also holy. That word has specific reference when it's combined with just, it has specific reference to the first four commandments. His relationship with God. John's sense of justice and his love for his neighbour flowed from his relationship with God. The Lord loved him and he loved his Lord. And he had loved the Lord from his youth. He grew up knowing and loving the Lord, and what a wonderful life that was. God was first in his life. 
He honoured God's commandments. He had a disciplined prayer life. He fed on the word of God. He loved to be in communion with God, his Father. He embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as the mediator between himself and God. John was a Christian. He was a believer. And it's out of that holy living that his justice came. That was the example that John saw from childhood. He was born, of course, to godly parents who were quite aged by the time that John was born. We're told in connection with them, incidentally, that they were both righteous before the Lord, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Isn't that interesting again? That doesn't just tell us that they were spiritually right with God. They had a relationship with God, a living relationship, but they were morally righteous and they were religious people. They, they came to church. They, they came to church when God wanted them to come to church or when God called them to come to church. They didn't say, well, sometimes I'll go, uh, sometimes I won't go. Uh, I might go today, I might not go next time. They kept all the ordinances of God. And in these respects, they were blameless. Blameless doesn't mean sinless. They would be the first to say they're not sinless. What blameless means is being without reproach. In other words, the world looks on and says, well, there's nothing manifestly wrong there. In fact, there's something manifestly right. There's something right in how Zacharias and Elizabeth are living their life. And there's something right in the way that they're bringing up John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was never foolish enough to depart from that. Sometimes when we're growing up, we think it's wise to depart from that. We, we want to, to get away from a life of godliness and perhaps we choose a life of foolishness for a time. And we regret it. I mean, for myself, I was converted at a very young age of 18. Well, certainly looks young to me now anyway. But even I, I regret the years before that that I lived as a non-Christian. Believe me, I regret them. God does as seems right to him. So be it. But I can say that it's better for anyone to live their youth as Christians rather than as non-Christians. Less to regret. Less to regret. Regrets are a waste of time anyway. It's better to repent of things rather than to regret things. But nonetheless, it's best to take the yoke in your youth and to serve the Lord from your youngest years. And John did that. That's how he grew up and he never departed from it. And the fact of the matter is that Herod started to fear this man. At the beginning of things he said, you're in my power. I'm an authority over you. I can do what I want with you. But lo and behold, suddenly the table seemed to be reversed. Herod starts to fear John. John doesn't fear Herod. That's the interesting thing. In a sense, his life is in Herod's hand. But he's not afraid of that. Herod's afraid of him. John is so little afraid of him. And he fears God so much that he tells Herod the truth. It's a risky thing to do. And the effect on Herod, as I mentioned, is that he did fear God. Now there is something about a, a man or a woman that's close to God that puts fear in our hearts. 
Now, I often hear stories about the so-called bad old days when people used to hide from ministers and elders. I don't know the extent to which that's true. I'm sure I did a fair amount of of hiding myself too. And and let me say right away that there's something not quite right if if a a Christian man or woman is um, forbidding and um, austere and utterly remote and completely unapproachable. I grant you something not right there. I would suggest that that man is veering more on the side of the Pharisee than he ought to be rather than the side of the man or woman of God. But that kind of thing can be taken too far. If you think that the Christian that can best communicate with you is the Christian who does exactly what you do, goes exactly where you go, reacts exactly the way you do to things, has the same entertainments and the same pleasures as you, you're completely and utterly mistaken. And and there are people who seem to think that that's the best way Christianity can sell itself. And the best way in which ministers can be ministers of the gospel is by just getting down there and being with the people, telling the same jokes, listening to the same jokes, watching the same films, being amused by the same thing. But, But if the world is with you and thinks it can tell the bluest joke that they know, and they know that you'll just sit and smile with them, there's something wrong with your witness. It's gone way wrong. And we all need to recognise that. By all means be friendly. By all means laugh. Share amusements, share interests. But know where there's a line. And that line will always be that you are sensitive to sin. And you will not sin. And you will not flirt with temptation. And the world will recognise that. And at the end of the day the world will respect that. Even if it doesn't approve of it. Now the amazing thing is that Herod ends up being drawn to him. And what does he do? Well, he does an amazing thing. First of all, he starts to listen to John often. Now this doesn't come through uh, so clearly in English as it does in the Greek, but we're told in verse 20 that when he heard him, at the end of verse 20, When he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Really that means whenever he heard him. Or he used to hear him and he used to hear him gladly. In other words, it was a repeated thing. He heard him often, not just once. That tells us pretty specifically that Herod used to either go to the prison, which is highly unlikely, or else just summon John out of the prison and have a conversation with him. That's interesting, isn't it? I wonder sometimes just what goes on in people's hearts. You know, you you think there are people and you say, ah, they've got no interest in the gospel at all. None whatsoever. Suppose if you knew Herod, you'd think that man's got no interest in the gospel at all. There he is, asking a godly prophet come and speak to him about the things of God. Often. Often. And not only did he hear him often, but lo and behold, we're told that he heard him gladly. Gladly. Again at the end of verse 20, when he heard him, or whenever he heard him, he did many things, and he heard him gladly. He was happy to hear him. 
time. Well, there's a couple of reasons. For one thing, we have a strange relationship with the truth. Because although we resisted, on the other hand, we know we need it. And there's something deep in our hearts that recognises it when it's in front of us. The reason for that is very simple. That we were created in the image of God. We're stamped with that image. And therefore we recognise the truth of God when it comes to us. <laughs> That's quite a remarkable thing really. I've often said to people that <clears throat> sometimes the most challenging thing for an atheist is it's not an argument, a single argument uh, to do with origins or something like that. But very often it's simply exposure to the truth of the Bible. Because the Bible is self-authenticating. The Holy Spirit is its author. And whenever it is read, the Holy Spirit is the one who's doing the speaking. Now he may choose to exert his own influence to a greater or lesser degree, but that doesn't change the fact that he is always the one who is speaking whenever the scripture is read. And by extension, we can say that he is always the one who is speaking whenever the scriptures are preached from, making allowance for the fact that the preacher can make a mistake. But nonetheless, the truth from which he preaches is always the truth of God, and it simply authenticates itself. Was it to yourselves I was saying quite recently what Spurgeon said when someone said to him, Mr. Spurgeon, could you spend more time defending the Bible? And he said, defend the Bible, he said. You just let the lion roar. Just let the lion roar. Well, that's true. Just you, you know, if you don't... I know you're here tonight, but I'm not going to presume from that that you're really convinced of God's existence. The best thing I can say to you is to pick up the Bible and just read it for yourself. Read it on your own. Read it in your own bedroom. Read it when there's no one and nothing around. Just take a gospel. Take a gospel like Luke and just read it. Put up the prayer if you're humble enough to say, Lord, if you are there, will you not convince me of the truth of this? Just take the challenge and do it. Take the challenge and do it. There's something in us that recognises the truth. And what's more, it recognises the truth even when it's condemning us. There was a, an example of that with Felix, of course, when he heard Paul preach and he said, he first of all stopped the hearing. I wonder why he did actually stop the hearing. Sometimes people can stop a thing like that when it starts to get a little bit uncomfortable. But anyway, he said, stop, he says, and I'll hear you later. And he did it, a private hearing. He came with his own wife, Drusilla, and he called for Paul. And we're called that when Paul preached to him about righteousness, that's God's righteousness, our lack of righteousness and God's provision of it, when he preached about self-control, our lack of and the way that God can give us self-control. And when he preached about the judgment of God to come, we're told that Felix trembled. Trembled. That was the effect of the word of God. But it didn't stop him sending for Paul again and again. And you may find that with yourself too. That you are drawn to something, even something that is condemning you. Because it's true. And as well as that, there's the added factor that God himself 
is the one who can sort it out. The only one who can. All our lives are a mess. And only one can sort it out. So he recognised the truth of what John spoke. Perhaps too that there is the fact that John may have spoken it well. There were always times when people spoke the gospel well. People used to flock to the Metropolitan Tabernacle to hear Spurgeon preach. Seven or thousand people every week you would find William Gladstone sitting beside a, a lowly servant girl. People would say it's the only building where that could happen in England or anywhere else. You could have Campbell Morgan, you could have Lloyd-Jones in Westminster Chapel, George Morrison in Wellington Church just opposite the university where people used to queue down University Avenue in the 1940s to hear that man preach the gospel. Candlish and Alexander White in St George's Church in Edinburgh. It's always been the case. In the Bible, I think I quoted these verses to you where God says to Ezekiel, the children of your people are speaking about you in the doors of houses, saying to each other, come and hear what's God, what God's word is. And they come to you, sitting before you as though they were my people. And they listen to your words and they don't do them. They show love with their mouth, but their hearts continue to seek their own gain. You are to them, now this is what Ezekiel was, listen. You are to them a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument because they listen to your words, but they do not do them. These are stunning words. Stunning words. It may be the case in this day and age, friends, that maybe just this doesn't quite happen so often. Um, it doesn't seem to be the case that the Lord has raised up in our own generation for whatever reason the Spurgeons or the Candlishes or the Whites, the Charmers, and so on. But nonetheless, it can sometimes be an attraction still. You could maybe in your own time just sit and listen to something and appreciate it just because of what it was but it's just like a, an instrument playing it doesn't change your life and God is interested in change change it's not entertainment it's change the staggering thing is that what's going on what's going on here is somebody hearing a preacher often and gladly, but still going to hell. That's what we've got here. Someone going to hear a preacher, or asking a preacher into his presence, often listening gladly, and on the way to hell. And we're told, just very briefly, not only that he heard him often and gladly, but we're told too in verse 20 there, that when he did that, he also did many things. What an interesting expression that is. Herod feared John, knowing he was a just and a holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, or whenever he heard him, not only did he hear him gladly, but he did many things. That's quite vague. I suppose we'd like to know what. What things? We don't know. But if you have to change the question a little bit and say, what kind of things? I think we know what kind of things he did. Things which were a response to what he heard. Obviously, 
What else can it mean? He responded to what he heard by actually doing something. I'm sure John urged him to read the copies of God's Word that were easily available to Herod. And I'm sure Herod read them. I'm sure Herod, I'm sure John taught Herod to pray. Perhaps Herod did decide that maybe he should pray. I'm sure John told Herod that he should reform his life, put it right according to the Word of God, and I'm sure he did something along those lines. And when the Word of God convicts us, we need to do something. We feel we have to do something. It's, it's just the way it works. You know, the Word of God just starts to convict you. You realise you're not a Christian. You realise there is an eternity and that you are lost. You've got to do something. And, and you try to do things, to put things right, put things right in the home, put things right in your life. But these resolutions, they seldom last beyond Monday, really. Maybe they go into Tuesday. Who knows, they might last a few weeks. But like Ephraim's repentance, it was like the morning cloud that promised so much, but eventually just vanished away. And like Herod, sad to say, it was just like that, because the one thing he wasn't prepared to do was change his life, really, where it mattered. Not where it mattered. There's always a darling sin, really, that we want to hang on to. And until it's made bitter to us, I suppose we'll never get anywhere. We all have it, a darling sin of some kind, that we just don't want to let go. And for Herod, following the Lord Jesus Christ meant too much to lose. Too much to lose, dear me. Suppose, Herod, you gain the whole world and lose your soul. Flip that round. Suppose you lost the whole world, Herod, and suppose you gain your soul. What a gain that is. What a gain that is, but that's in a foolishness, not how we see it. Now let me close by saying that where we're leaving Herod tonight is a dangerous place to be in. In one respect, it's good. He's responding to the word of God. The danger is that he's not actually yielding to it. He's putting up a resistance. Maybe he's saying, like Felix, that in a convenient season, I'll put this right, you know, I'm, I'm getting there, I'm making headway, I'm going in the right direction. Maybe soon I'll take the decision that really matters. An opportune season when everything makes it easy for me to make the right decisions. Right now it's hard for me to make the right decisions, but a time will come when it'll be easy. You know, people come out with that kind of stuff all the time. People say things like, oh, I'm going to think about church when I'm retired. I'm going to think about becoming a Christian when my children are all grown up and I don't have to look after them. Or when my job's finished, you know. Do you think the devil's stupid? Do we think we're that wise ourselves? Do we not realise the new pressures that come in? The new difficulties? Do we not realise the sheer danger in playing around with God's convictions? Not realising that they can just dissipate and disappear forever? Well, an opportune season. Well, that's the word that's used in verse 21. Then an opportune day came. Ah, but not for Herod, for his wife, and for Satan. It was his birthday. It's a birthday that 
he wishes tonight he had never celebrated in the way he did. We'll see what that means next Lord's Day. Let's stand to pray. Almighty and uh, gracious God, who strives with ourselves, each one, when we are unworthy of such strivings, it's our foolishness to be resisting them. It is our souls that are to be lost or saved. And yet all day long you stretch out your hands to a disobedient people. We pray, Lord, to lay hold of that hand, which in one fell swoop is able to lift us out of our miry clay and place our feet on a solid rock. We pray that you would do that for each one of us. <coughs> Give us the wisdom to cry to the Lord to help us who cannot help ourselves. In the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen. <coughs> Our uh, last singing is in Psalm 31. And at verse 13. And here, just in conclusion, I think it's worth... um, taking the spotlight off heaven just for a little while to the man who's in the prison and who incidentally won't get out of the prison, of course, until Herod's birthday and his own death. For slander sigh of many heard, fear compassed me while they against me did consult and plot to take my life away. But as for me, O Lord, my trust upon thee I did lay, and I to thee... Thou art my God, did confidently say. My times are holy in thine hand. Do thou deliver me from their hands that my enemies and persecutors be. Thy countenance to shine do thou upon thy servant make. And to me give salvation for thy great mercy's sake. These uh, four stanzas we can stand uh, to sing.
Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.